The Guardian. Hello again, I'm Michael White and this is the Guardian's Daily Podcast. I'm at Westminster and here there are two top items of news today. One is that the new Chancellor, George Osborne, I'm still finding it difficult to say it, has announced that his emergency budget, the one he promised within 50 days, will be on June the 22nd and that, boy, uh, cuts are even more urgent than he thought. Secondly, to reinforce this point, he's dramatically announced that he's giving up, again, a Tory election pledge, giving up the power to allow the Chancellor to set forecasting for the Treasury and uh, creating an Office of Budget Responsibility. The last government's forecasts for growth in the economy over the past 10 years have on average been out by £13 billion each year. Their forecasts on the budget deficit three years ahead have on average been out by £40 billion. Unsurprisingly, these forecasting errors have almost always been in the wrong direction. And I'm John Dennis at The Guardian's HQ with the rest of today's podcast. Our economics editor Larry Elliott gives his view of today's announcements from George Osborne. It's tempting to see this as the Conservative version of Labour's setting up of the Monetary Policy Committee in 1997. It's not quite as dramatic a move as that because ultimately the decisions on tax and spending will still be taken by the Chancellor. Also today we'll hear from our reporter in Thailand where protesters fear a bloody conclusion to the standoff with government troops. There's already been one child killed. Um, that hasn't been widely reported because that, that information was sort of deliberately kept very, very quiet. A 14-year-old boy was shot. And the American pollster Stan Greenberg gives his take on Britain's general election. You know, it, it was a very tactical election by Labour fighting out over, you know, when the defs, you know, when the cuts in, the, in spending are going to come, but not really on the character of the society, character of, um, of, of the state. Here in Westminster, George Osborne set the pace. I think he's probably trying to copy Gordon Brown, who on the first Monday after his election in 1997 uh, famously set up the independence uh, uh, of the Bank of England and the Financial Services uh, Authority to regulate the banking industry. It all came a bit unstuck during the uh, uh, banking crisis of 2007-9 and Mr Osborne, well, he's backing off his own plans to unpick it all again. That wasn't his issue today. Today, uh, it's about setting up the Office of Budget Responsibility and coupling that with the message he reinforced it in an interview with the FT saying we must cut that famous six billion. The Lib Dems have agreed with us. They didn't agree with us before the coalition agreement, but we've talked them into it now and we're going to do that. And of course, in the process, he says, as all incoming chancellors do, oh, the figures which Labour bequeathed us, uh, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling are much worse than we thought. He's even used the phrase, um, he's giving up in setting up the OBR, he's giving up the power to, the temptation to fiddle the figures. And he explained that at his press conference. The first part of our approach is to boost credibility and confidence in the UK's fiscal framework. In short, we urgently need a full independent assessment of how bad the problem really is. As the IMF has said, strong fiscal institutions can enhance the credibility of consolidation plans. I could not agree more. Over the last 13 years, the public and the markets have completely lost confidence in government economic forecasts. The last government's forecasts for growth in the economy over the past 10 years have on average been out by £13 billion each year. Their forecasts on the budget deficit three years ahead have on average been out by £40 billion. 
I want independent forecasts to become the norm. And this will inevitably mean giving away some of my powers as Chancellor. Of course, the elected government will still set the overall fiscal goals of the government and the extent to which fiscal policy expands or contracts at each budget. And of course, it will retain control over tax and spending decisions. These are properly decisions for elected politicians, accountable to Parliament and to voters. But I am the first Chancellor to remove the temptation to fiddle the figures by giving up control of the economic and fiscal forecast. Our man Nick Watt was there and uh, he asked this question. Chancellor, can I ask you, over the lifetime of this Parliament, can you give a commitment that you will accept every recommendation for a fiscal adjustment from the OBR. And if you can't give that commitment, will people not conclude that today you're not setting up the OBR, you're setting up the OBL, the Office for Blaming Labour? Right. Um, oh, it's very spiky this morning. <laughs> let, let, me, um, let, let me explain how the Office for Budget Responsibility you know, will work, and maybe Alan uh, will want to say more about this. Uh, first of all, it will produce the fiscal forecast and the growth forecast. Uh, and so, you know, frankly, what previous chancellors have done is you know, move those around a bit to try and fit their budget measures. And uh, we are giving up that power. That is an enormous thing for a chancellor to give up. It is a key, um, you know, political tool in budget making. And I'm deliberately doing this because I don't think it produces good budgets. Uh, and uh, another task it will have is to judge the success of the government against its own stated fiscal mandate. In other words, the path that I will set out in the budget about how much progress we expect to make in eliminating the structural budget deficit over the parliament. The OBR will judge our success against that. So it won't be recommending particular tax or spending measures. What it will say is, you made this promise, Chancellor, and you are currently on track to deliver on that promise, or you are off track to deliver on that promise. And if you contrast that with uh, uh, the, you know, uh, Gordon Brown's golden rule, where he created this thing, then made himself his own judge and jury and said, I am meeting the golden rule. That was, you know, a regular feature of those budgets in the middle part of this decade. Uh, you know, that is, that is not the right approach. So uh, what you will get from the OBR is you will be able to say to me, well, it's all very well, George Osborne, you say you're delivering on your promise, but Alan Budd says you're not. And, uh, and frankly, I think people in that situation are going to be more inclined to believe Alan Budd than they are George Osborne. There was a moment of humour, despite the solemnity of the occasion. David Laws, he's the Lib Dem, who's the new number two, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, the man who will implement the cuts, the abominable no-man is his nickname, if he holds that job in Whitehall. Providing cover for George Osborne, we won't be able to say Tory cuts, they'll have to be Lib Tory cuts. I think Mr Osborne likes the idea of that. Anyway, David Laws revealed uh, a little note he had received. When I arrived at my desk on the very first day as Chief Secretary, um, I found a letter from the previous Chief Secretary uh, to give me some advice on, uh, I assumed, on how I could conduct myself over the months ahead. Unfortunately, when I opened it, there was, it was a one-sentence letter which simply said, Dear Chief Secretary, I'm afraid to tell you there's no money left, uh, which was slightly, 
which was honest but slightly uh, less uh, helpful advice than I had been expecting. That was his predecessor, Labour's Liam Byrne, sending uh, a little warning note to David Laws. I should stress, some people don't get it, I think it was meant as a joke, a good-humoured joke. Outgoing ministers often do uh, little letters for their successors. Back at Guardian HQ, John Dennis is talking to Larry Elliott of our economics team. OK, Larry, well... Next Monday, we now know that £6 billion worth of cuts are going to be announced. Where will the axe fall? We don't absolutely know for sure, but I think the first, uh, the first place that they're going to target will be Quangos. I mean, this sort of you know, big amorphous bunch of non-governmental organisations that spend loads of public money. So that's where George Osborne said the, um, they're going to look for the savings first. Um, it won't quite be six billion because some of the money is going to be ploughed back into job creation schemes and help for small businesses. So there'll be not quite six billion. I think it'll probably be five billion or thereabouts. So some of the money, I think, at the behest of the Liberals, is going to be ploughed back into the economy to ensure it keeps going over the coming months. But still, five billion pounds worth of cuts, and that's just a taste of more to come, isn't it? That's just a down payment on what to expect over the coming years. I think that you know, six billion, five billion sounds quite a lot of money, but actually, is about one percent of public spending, about zero point three percent of national output. So, really, quite small beer in the context of a one point five trillion pound economy, and we are going to see much, much deeper cuts in the years to come. That's for sure. Yes, public spending is being targeted for some very, very hefty cuts, and the coalition government's taking immediate action to reduce the debt. Won't that risk a double-dip recession? That is a risk because what's happened up until now is that the public sector has kept the economy going. There's been lots of public spending, lots of job creation in the public sector and the gamble that the Chancellor's taken is that as you actually withdraw money from the public sector, the private sector expands to fill the gap. So he expects consumer spending to grow, he expects investment to pick up and he particularly expects exports to improve. Now that is a big gamble because Britain's main export market is the Eurozone and that's really struggling. Investment has really struggled during the recession um, and not has not grown it's mean, actually collapsed in the manufacturing sector and consumer spending has actually been relatively relatively weak so he is he is banking on the private sector taking up the slack and there's no guarantee that's going to happen Osborne has announced today the creation of the office for budget responsibility now what is that and how's it going to work well, Osborne's view is that um, chancellors have played fast and loose with government forecasts and budget forecasts and have used them for political purposes. So they've overestimated growth, they've overestimated the strength of public finances. So he set up the OBR, which is a, an independent body, to essentially to actually do a, do a rain check on, on, on the real state of the economy and the real state of the public finances. Now, this will report before the budget and the pre-budget report, and he will use those independent forecasts as a basis for his budget judgments. Is he going to create a rod for his own back, or, or is this um, independent body going to be open to sort of government interpretation and manipulation? It's tempting to see this as the Conservative version of Labour's setting up of the Monetary Policy Committee in 1907. It's not quite as dramatic a move as that because ultimately the decisions on tax and spending will still be taken by the Chancellor and that's, you know, that's right and proper because these are big political decisions and George Osborne will take those decisions. However, he will have to explain if, he, if he's taking decisions which don't conform with what the OBR is saying, why he's doing them. But he will have the right, obviously, to override any advice he gets from the Office of Budget Responsibility. But it does hold, it does hold the Chancellor's feet to the far um, in terms of his judgments, in terms of, of tax and spending. Larry Elliott. I'm John Dennis. Still to come, Stan Greenberg, pollster for America's Democratic Party on the UK's election. But first, 
In Bangkok, the Thai government gave women and children until three o'clock this afternoon, that's 9am UK time, to leave the protesters' camp. One 14-year-old boy has already been killed in the violent clashes between demonstrators and government troops. The authorities said that when the deadline had passed, the army would begin a final offensive to forcibly remove the red-shirt protesters. The Guardian's correspondent in Bangkok is Ben Doherty, and he's on the line now. Ben, how did the demonstrators respond to the government's deadline? As the uh, three o'clock mark came and went, they marked the, uh, the moment, I suppose, by cranking up the music that they'd been playing for days and days and days and dancing and singing in the uh, centre of um, their sprawling protest camp. In the hours leading up to the... Um, to, to, to that three o'clock time, the government had, had sent a plane to circle very, very low um, and very tightly over the uh, protest camp, broadcasting a message down at the protesters, warning them that this was their last opportunity to leave before they would be treated essentially as criminals um, and troops would be sent in. But that uh, warning was ignored and, and in, in fact the plane was fired upon it with, uh, with, with firecrackers and, and rockets. So there is, a, there is a mood of defiance amongst the red shirts. They, uh, they weren't to be um, told by the government where, when they'd be leaving and uh, essentially, um, as far as we can tell, very, very few people have, um, have, have left uh, because of that government demand. But that means, Ben, that uh, there are a lot of women and children still in the protesters' camp with the government threatening to now forcibly remove them all. That is the case, and, and, and there are hundreds of children still behind the barricades, many behind the redshirt barricades, but also hundreds more uh, living in the, um, in the blacked-out suburbs that are, that are no-man's land. There's already been one child killed um, that hasn't been widely reported because that, that information was sort of deliberately kept very, very quiet. A 14-year-old boy was shot as the van that he was travelling in approached a, um, a, a checkpoint. He was one of two people uh, shot in a, um, in a van. Uh, at least 50% of the, uh, the protesters uh, behind the barricades are women. Most of the, of the protesters manning the, the barricades on, on, on the edge of the very large protest camp um, who are engaged in the conflict with the troops are men. But uh, if you come to the middle of the uh, protest site, the protesters are, are overwhelmingly women. There are also hundreds of, of, of children uh, behind the red, the red shirt barricades. They're here with their, uh, their, their families. But there are also many, many children uh, trapped in those those blacked out suburbs that I suppose are the no man's land between the red shirt barricades and the troops position and they're also of course in danger if um, as promised the uh, troop movements begin sometime in the next few hours or few days. Ben Doherty in Bangkok. Now, Stan Greenberg, the American pollster, checkered history of success, Dan Greenberg, I think you could say politely, been in London during the election and today at the Royal Society of Arts, just off the Strand, an ancient uh, 18th century building built in the Age of Enlightenment uh, uh, to progress arts and the commerce, currently run by Matthew Taylor, formerly Downing Street policy head, a hub of uh, uh, dynamism under his energetic leader, Mr. Taylor. Stan Greenberg has been at lunch giving a talk on the findings he's unearthed. What was the British election about was the question he asked, and he's given some answers. Tom Clark was there. OK, here we are at the Royal Society of Arts with the top American pollster, Stan Greenberg, who has just finished a very intriguing talk on the election that just was. And um, Stan has been telling us, in a word, that there are progressive values in Britain, but there's not progressive votes. Could you just expand on that for a minute for us, Stan? Well, there's not progressive votes because there has not been progressive leadership. Uh, well, I mean, what this what this data says, <clears throat> and it's very frustrating to, to, to go into the data, because the more you go into it, 
you know, this is a this is a country that thinks it has no confidence in markets and financial regulation. The freeing up of financial regulation wants to invest, um, you know, versus is for <laughs> bigger government versus big society. They want, you know, they think the solutions require better leaders, better government, and labor did not find a way to be part of that, you know, conversation. You know, it, it was a very tactical election by labor fighting out over, you know, when the defs, you know, when the cuts in the in spending are going to come, but not really on the character of the society, character of, um, of, of the state. And it's, you know, it's a progressive vision, you know, ready to, to be picked up, you know, by the, apparently, presumably, you know, a new leader of the Labour Party. And it sounds like you're saying that maybe a different leader could have won it for Labour this time. I think there. I think voters, you know, Cameron, you know, got you know got up to about the mid 40s, you know, for far out from the election. He settled down to about you know 41, you know, one percent. Personal ratings. Oh no, no, the vote for the Conservatives. He got the vote, you know, pedaled, you know, to about around 41 percent for about a year, you know, coming into the election, then started, you know, dropping. But that was a measure of something. It wasn't just a drop. It was his, you know, his failure to win over voters to build anything in, you know, enduring. And you know, you watched it during the election itself, reinforced by the first debate. You know that you know there's he's, you know, there's nothing real there. There's nothing dependable there for if you're looking for change. And they began looking for, uh, for change, and they and um, they looked to Clegg, and then they you know you know and pulled back from that you know ultimately and came back. You know, back to its kind of pre-debate vote for conservatives, but it was you know a low number. They you know they didn't offer a way forward. You know these voters were looking for labor to be able to offer a way forward. A new leader, I think, you know, will do that and probably would have had uh, um, a significant impact in the election itself. I've just been to another seminar this morning where we're talking about the cuts that are to come. Uh, we're talking about uh, depending on how you cut the numbers, ten percent, fifteen percent, or twenty-five percent cuts in in major public programs. Those are quite serious numbers. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like you're saying David Cameron squeaked home to the extent that he did by not confronting those hard truths. Do you think this could be a good election to lose in the end? Then <laughs> uh, I th- I think Labour is in, had a disastrous election. I mean, this was historically <clears throat> disastrous election in terms of its history, British history. Um, but it's also a liberating election. I mean, this is an election in which they. Uh, do not have to carry on to you know to make these kinds of cuts without a you know real mandate to do it. Uh, the uh, I, I frankly don't think the conservatives and Lib Dem government have a mandate to make cuts on that scale, but they will have to do it. You know the because they were imprecise you know about what they were going to do. It was more about process uh, than the real than the real cuts. So yes, it's you know it's better that these choices are being made by the conservatives. I think they will own the cuts. The country is nervous about them, as we saw in, in this uh, in this poll, uh, and Labor can get on with you know t- you know renewing itself revisiting its history, coming at this in whole new ways, and I think Labour can be in a much more revitalised position five years from now. And can we just have a final word about the Liberal Democrats? Um, that was the story of the election, Clegg surged away, but then just before polling day it seems like he slipped back. Did he, and why, if so? Well, he slipped, he slipped back, but, uh, but I wouldn't underestimate the importance of what he did. You know, he sli- you know he slipped back. Um, again, that slip back is a little misleading. What because what happened, you know, was that he held on to the votes that he you know got uh, in the more middle class areas, professional areas, uh, but lost his vote in the working class areas. That may have been on a you know you know granting a you know. Um, 
you know, immigration issues, but that, you know, drove those voters away. So he lost voters in one part and gained them in, in another. But the key, though, is that he's able to form a government that will change the rules. Um, electoral on, voting. Re- on voting, electoral reform should allow them to be in a stronger position. Um, and and as what I have found in my work dealing with the with broad green parties uh, in Europe is that once they once they make the headway winning on political reform and they're gaining let's not forget Iraq was a critical part of their vote you know in the in the last election so the Iraq combined with political reform I think puts them in the position to be an enduring party reinforced by an electoral system you know which give them better representation so I think this election has changed their fortunes and that may have changed the fortunes of the center left as a whole even if they end up allied to these big cuts well, if they're clever, I mean, they'll be grudging and reluctant, and it'll be the conservatives that own the cuts, <laughs> and they will own the political reforms. That's you know, that's their hope for the future. <laughs> so they better start briefing against their cabinet colleagues now. <laughs> you're here. You're here. Thank you very much indeed, Stan Greenberg. So the end of the first quotes unquote normal working day of the new government. And of course, one feature of a new government is a new Downing Street spokesman and a new setup. The new government has decided, at least on an interim basis, to appoint a civil servant. You won't ever see his names in the paper, although the Downing Street briefing these days is on the record. You can quote them. They even put a version up on the Number 10 website every day. One convention hangover from the old days is that we don't name the spokesman. He never appears on radio or TV. You don't film or record his briefings. But I can tell you, you may know this already, his name is Steve Field. He's a Treasury official, solid, reliable, very capable, fluent man. Everybody likes him. How did he do? Well, I thought he did pretty well in the circumstances. It must be terrifying. He spent his career handling arcane, technically difficult economic questions. But, of course, now he's got the whole piece to worry about. And what happened in the briefing today, me sitting at the back, was we started off on George Osborne's cuts. Of course we did, and matters well within Steve's competence. He spent his career doing these things, and he uh, answered them very well, bless him. But as the briefing goes on, you've got 50 or so journalists, foreign correspondents, as well as members of the parliamentary lobby. They started asking the kind of questions which he's never had to encounter before. What does the Prime Minister think of Lord Treesman's dramatic resignation as the head of England's World Cup bid. And I quote here, uh, he thinks this is uh, essentially a matter for the FA. That's a good start. Alistair Campbell would have shot his mouth off or been tempted to at that point. The FA has acted smoothly in appointing someone else and he's still uh, very enthusiastic about the World Cup bid and fully supports it. Well done, Steve Field. And so it went on. The ash cloud. Matter of passenger safety is our priority, he said. Well done again, Steve Field. And the latest Iran nuclear swap deal. Remember, this guy's not a, a foreign office diplomat. He doesn't know. He hesitated and said, well, you know, we've um, received these reports. We're checking out. They may not be true, but the position is unchanged. Always a good thing for a spokesman to say when he's in a hole. Then he got asked all sorts of things. What about opposition days? Who would Nick Clegg's spot at Prime Minister's Question Time? You know, who would take that now? He wisely didn't answer that one. I bet the, the SNP would uh, love that. Somebody asked him about the Times report, that 100 new peers are going to be appointed, Tory and Lib Dem, to match Labour in the House of Lords. He rubbished that one, I'm afraid. And um, <clears throat> the tricky one, I thought, was, would the Prime Minister st- still support Speaker Burko? Now, 
That's politically awkward because Speaker Burko is unpopular among Conservative MPs. He was elected when the Tories forced out uh, Michael Martin. He was elected by what was still a Labour House. Some of them did it on purpose, uh, poisoning the wells, one of them told me. Uh, it's a tricky one. So he said, I'm not really sure about the constitutional position, hesitating. And a reporter shouted, Prime Minister always supports the Speaker of the House of Commons. And he said, well, the gentleman says that. Well, the, one of the other reporters said, oh, no, take no notice of him. He sidestepped an awkward situation of Mr. Cameron being seen to endorse John Burko when a lot of his backbenchers, particularly the right-wingers, who are fed up with Mr. Cameron anyway, really want to get Burko out. I don't think they will. So I thought a pretty good 8 out of 10 session for the new Downing Street spokesman. Uh, but I bet he'll be surprised in the morning what sort of headlines he's generated about the World Cup and about the ash cloud and about uh, uh, Speaker Burko. That is the power of the number 10 spokesmanship. Well, that was Guardian Daily Podcast. This is Mike White at Westminster, John Dennis at uh, Guardian HQ. Uh, our producers were Phil Maynard and Andy Duckworth, and we'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.